Morning, Christ Church. Today is our first Sunday in Lent, and we began a new sermon series this past Wednesday at Ash Wednesday, and I want to um, revisit that and say a little bit more about this sermon series as we get into the sermon today. We are in what we've called a season of shalom right now over the past several months, and in each of the church seasons, we've had particular sermon series that go along with this season of shalom. So you remember in Advent, we were talking about becoming tenders of the garden. We talked about themes of creation and different ways that we are even ministered to through creation. In Epiphany, we were talking about becoming builders of unity and what it takes, the cost of becoming a group who is uh, united around Christ. And now in Lent, we're starting a new series called Becoming Who We Are. Becoming Who We Are. And Becoming Who We Are, we're going to focus on key remembrances in Scripture and there's a book that we're going to use. This is, book is going to kind of be a bit of a guidepost for us. We're not going to um, just say everything it says in there, but it's going to at least give us direction for how we talk about some key ways the scriptures call us to remember. It's one of the main commandments in scripture, to remember, to remember the Lord, to remember the Lord your God. And when you do that as an individual, when you do that collectively, you start to step into this identity. We become who we are. So this book is called The Shattering of Loneliness on Christian Remembrance. And even though it says The Shattering of Loneliness, it truly is a book about remembrance. And um, I want to put just the table of contents up here because this is going to kind of be the framework for this series, Becoming Who We Are. These are the different remembrances we're going to pay attention to. Remember you are dust. We did that this past Wednesday on Ash Wednesday. Remember you were a slave in Egypt. That's what we're going to talk about today. Remember Lot's wife. That might be a bit of an odd one. We'll talk about it next week. In Luke 17, Jesus talks about the kingdom coming, and he suddenly says, remember Lot's wife. Do this in memory of me. The counselor, the Holy Spirit, will call everything to mind, and then it ends on this really a stark warning. Beware, lest you forget the Lord. So today we're looking at this key idea, remember that you were once a slave in Egypt. And here is how I want to kind of just structure our time together, is I want us to first look at that from the perspective of the Old Testament. Remember you were a slave in Egypt. And then I want us to move to the New Testament, asking the same question. How, how might the New Testament call us to remember you were once a slave in Egypt? And I want to... Um, Begin this sermon by inviting you to use your imagination, imagining yourself in the story of Scripture. The Scriptures are your stories. You are the inheritors of them. But it takes some active imagination to put ourselves back into the story and to hear God's word being spoken to us. So as best you can, imagine, start by imagining you're standing on the eastern bank of the Jordan River. You're standing on the eastern bank, and you're, you're looking out to the west across of this Jordan River. You're looking at the promised land that your people are waiting to go into. You've heard all the stories your life growing up about how God has rescued you out of Egypt in dramatic fashion. You remember growing up, you heard these stories about these plagues in Egypt, these different plagues that God was using to rescue you and rescue your people, culminating in this really powerful 10th plague, this plague on the, the death of the firstborn child. And unlike all the other plagues, you remember hearing the stories of how this particular plague was different, and there was no distinction between the Egyptians and the Israelites. That night, some angel came, and there was a, a death on every firstborn child, except for those 
whose houses had been marked by the blood of this Passover lamb. And every year for all your life, you have celebrated this Passover, remembering, remembering that it is by the blood of the lamb that you were saved and you were rescued. The night that this happened, you're about 40 years old now, maybe 41, and the night that this happened, this event, you were wrapped up in a blanket. You were carried out into the desert by your parents. You were following God and his leader, Moses. And as you and your people began entering the desert, Pharaoh had a change of mind. He had this vengeful spirit and decided that he did not, in fact, want to let you go. So even though you all were marching, men, women, children, babies being carried on foot, Pharaoh gathered together, summoned together all of his armies and began to chase you out into the desert, pinning you against another body of water, the Red Sea. And of course, you don't remember this because you were just an infant, but at that time, your people began praying and some miracle happened. This tornadic type gale force wind came and blew the sea so that somehow you Israelites were able to walk through. And when all of you, every last man, woman, and child had made it through to the other side, the, it's like all of a sudden the, the storm just vanished. And as Pharaoh tried to follow you through, they were all swept under the water. Having been through something so powerful, something so dramatic as that rescue, you would think that all that would be left at this point was for your people to begin worshiping this God of the rescue, and this one who took you out of the slavery and the tyranny of Egypt. You remember in Egypt, you had to work seven days a week. You never had even a day of rest. You remember that even as you would uh, give birth to your young children, if it was a male child, that there were people who came around seeking to put that child to death. You were under enslavement. And you were rescued dramatically out into the desert. You would think that all that is left is for you to begin, and your people, to begin worshiping this God of the rescue. But the influence of Egypt ran deep. And your people's consciousness were soaked in enslavement. Old habits and old patterns were hard to break. And so at multiple points, your parents and your grandparents failed. There's this incident where you started to quarrel with God because you didn't have any water and you were concerned that maybe he just brought you into the desert to kill you. Now Moses does something. He strikes this rock at this place called Meribah, but he does it in some way that really displeases God. God makes a deal about this, his displeasure from this. Then there's this other incident, the golden calf. No sooner were your people out of Egypt than your parents, they, they wanted somewhere to direct their worship. And so they took all their gold earrings and bracelets and they melted them down. And just to give them somewhere to pray to, they made this golden calf. They weren't willing to wait for the unseen God to reveal himself to them. The worst sin, however, and this is the reason that you have spent your infancy, your adolescence, and your adulthood, this is the reason you've spent 40 years growing up in the desert, was that your parents refused to go up and take the land. See, the, Moses had sent these spies, Joshua and Caleb were a couple of them, up into the land to look into this promised land, the land that God had promised, and as they came back and they were reporting on how big the warriors were and how fearful it was. It's, it's just like everyone became afraid and decided you didn't want to trust God. And so Moses held a vote and all the men raised their hands to say, we won't do it. You voted against God. And God said, I'll leave you then these 40 years into the desert so that you will learn to trust me. That's why you've been in the desert for 40 years. 
This desert trial you've been in is not because he hates you, but because he loves you. This journey from Egypt was only supposed to take a month. But here you are, a grown adult, 40 years later. And God has allowed this desert time so you can learn to trust him. And now, look out over the waters. You're standing again at another body of water, the Jordan River right now. And you're looking out westward into this very same promised land with the same larger-than-life type warriors in this moment. And there's an opportunity now for you to respond differently. Do you trust this God who's been caring for you in the desert these 40 years? And as you're gazing out across this river, suddenly Moses himself comes forward, old man that he is now, wizened beard, kind of a shriveled figure, yet still the prophetic leader of this community. And as you see him walk forward, you get the sense this is some final speech, some final moment that Moses is giving. It's like his last words to the Israelites before you're going to cross and go into this new promised land. And he begins speaking to you. He says this, Hear, Israel, the decrees and the laws that I declare in your hearing today. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Have no other gods before me. You notice that before Moses starts reciting these familiar Ten Commandments, they're very familiar. You say them almost every single day. He wants you to remember something, to remember that it is God who rescued you and your parents, your aunties, your uncles, your cousins, your grandparents, your neighbors. It is God who rescued you and your people out of Egypt. And while you're reflecting on this, Moses says it again. He says, remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm, an arm more powerful than Pharaoh. Remember, you were a slave in Egypt. You're starting to catch. This seems to be a a significant theme for Moses in this last speech that he's giving us here. You start to wonder, why is Moses so emphatic in this? We've been with him. We've been following God these 40 years in the desert. We're going into the promised land. Why do we need to remember Egypt? Why should we remember Egypt? And It's like Moses is, he's dialed in. He's reading your thoughts because he answers why he wants you to remember Egypt in his very next statement. He says, when the Lord your God brings you into this new land, this promised land that you're looking at right now, he swore to give you this land with large and flourishing cities that you didn't build. Houses filled with all kinds of good things you did not provide, wells you didn't dig, vineyards and olive groves you didn't plant, you haven't tended to, and yet there they are. Then you're going to eat and you're going to be satisfied, and be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Be careful when things seem to be going so well for you, when you seem to be so well fed, that Egypt just seems like a distant memory. And you don't remember that dramatic rescue. You don't remember that enslavement. Be careful that you do not forget he rescued you out of Egypt. You were not always free. You were once enslaved. Remember, you were a slave in Egypt. That's our Old Testament perspective. Remember, you were a slave in Egypt. I want to pivot now. We're going to ask the same question in the New Testament. What does the New Testament have to say about remembering that you were once a slave in Egypt? Well, Paul teaches us that we have all experienced captivity, that we've all been prisoners under the captivity of sin. And that category of sin, sometimes Christians hear that, 
And um, we think that sin simply means something like doing bad things, you know? If I, I, I do bad things, and that's all that sin is. But Paul wants to say, actually, it's much wider than just doing bad things when we talk about the category of sin. Sin is like a whole domain, a whole kingdom. You are born under an alien power, very much like the Egyptian enslavement, more than just a tendency to do bad things. You were born into a kingdom where you are oppressed. You are enslaved. And Paul says you can take this enslavement at a macro level. You can just look at the newspaper today. Actually, at any point in history, you could just pay attention to the news and you would say, our world is under an enslavement. He says, take it at a macro level. The whole cosmos is under this domain of sin. Or take it at a very hyper-focused level. And every single human born into the world, down to the last baby, is born into a world under the domain and under the power and under the influence and under the tyranny of sin. If you read through Paul's letter to the Romans, this is his tour de force. There's this powerful argument about this enslavement. And this sermon, we are not going to unpack Romans. That takes like years to get through Romans. And yet I'm going to try and go through four chapters in the next couple of minutes. <laughs> Let me give you this overview of this argument. Paul is, um, you, you have to read Paul. We're, we're accustomed to reading like a half of a chapter and thinking that we've done enough in our Bible reading. You have to read whole swaths at a time, like whole chunks. This whole argument is from Romans 5 to Romans 8. And he's saying in Romans 5, there's this universality of Adam and Jesus, that everyone kind of falls under one of their domains. And in Romans 6, he spells it out. You're either captive to Adam and to his influence, the influence of sin, or you're captive to Jesus and the influence of righteousness. Romans 7, he spells out very specifically what is it like to be under Adam, and in Romans 8, what is life like under Jesus? And in the middle, I want us to like zoom in to Romans 7 is where we're going to look. In the middle of uh, Romans 7, Paul describes this person living under sin's power, a person caught in the grip of realizing all of their life is hopeless, that they can't live the way they want to. They wish they could go to God for help, but they don't know how. And when everything else fails, they kind of just you get to a point where you just realize, like, I actually can't live life the way I'm supposed to live life. Like, I imagine almost everyone in here, at least at one point in their life, has probably had this experience of saying, like, I can't do it. Like, I really tried hard, and it doesn't matter how hard I try, I can't stop doing what I don't want to do. Paul says in this familiar passage, he says, I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin, I don't even understand what I do. What I want to do, I don't do. What I hate to do, and if I do what I don't want to do, I agree then that the law, God's commandment, somehow it's good. I wish I could do it, but I can't. You know, I remember a number of years ago, I met and I was having a conversation with a young man, and um, he was one of these fitness junkie types. You know, you, 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 just, you, you see this, this kind of person, and you're like, I really should have been working out a whole lot more the last 20 years of my life as I stand next to you. <laughs> Just like totally obsessed with this, and um, I met him. His girlfriend had recently broken up with him, and, um, and yet he was very interested in Christianity. didn't believe in Jesus, uh, but he, he said, I'm interested, and I want to know some more. I didn't grow up believing this, but tell me a little bit more about this. 
We started talking about his life, and this dude was literally in the gym every morning at 4 a.m., measured out every single meal that he ate all the time. And of course, it's good to be fit, and it's good to, to care about these things, but this, this was an obsession, like a, a deep obsession. In fact, the reason his girlfriend was breaking up with him was because he spent more time in this gym working out, concerned with his physique, with his body, than he actually spent towards her. There was this self-absorption that he just kind of couldn't see about it. So I asked him about his friends and kind of same story. And I don't have any friends or anything like that. And we started talking more about God. And he had this really poignant question. He said, if I follow God, will he tell me I have to stop working out? Stop going to the gym. And I said, is that really so bad? If he were to tell you that, your girlfriend just broke up with you over this. You don't have friends. Seems to be some sort of an unhealthy addiction here. You're considering if there is a God who made you that maybe he has rights over your own body. And yet you don't want him because of this one thing. Yeah, he might call you. I don't know. Working out's not a sin, but he might call you to give this up. And his response was so incredible. He said, I can't do that. I can't worship a God who wouldn't let me live like this. And as I tell this story, even right now as I tell this story to you, I'm aware of almost how ridiculous that sounds. Like you really can't stop doing that one thing. And yet again, isn't that the story of every single one of us? Like in all sorts of ways that you have all had moments where you have desired career or influence or popularity, or recognition amongst your peers, or some sort of pleasure. And the power of sin subdues us without realizing it until we actually try and leave, try and escape its domain. And there comes a point where we must say, I am incapable, I am literally incapacitated to break out of this cycle on my own. And here's the point. Remember, you were a slave in Egypt. Remember this was you. Remember you were self-absorbed. Remember your anger when you lived like this. Remember your lack of empathy, your lack of concern for other people. Remember that sense that you had that you thought you were always right, that you were so convinced of your own rightness that you couldn't even stand to listen to another person disagree with you. Couldn't hear another person criticize you because it broke your fragile ego because you were enslaved to your ego. Remember how hard it was to forgive others. Remember, you were also a slave in Egypt. You were enslaved to sin. And sometimes Christians think that this description in Romans 7 is meant to be Paul describing his like, ongoing personal experience as a Christian, his ongoing present experience of following God, because Paul says, I don't do the things I want to do. He uses that word, I. But I don't think that's the best way to read this passage. I don't think he's talking about something like being tempted by sin or fighting against sin. He does talk about what it's like to be tempted by sin in 1 Corinthians. He talks about struggling against sin in Galatians 5. I don't think that's what he's talking about here. He's talking about total captivity under sin, the inability to actually act and to follow God. Why is Romans 7 not the daily experience of a Christian? Why do I say that when Paul writes, I do not do what I want to do, that's not the daily experience of a Christian. Two reasons. First of all, reason one, as Paul wrote this letter, we have to remember, we're reading Romans out of a Bible. Um, when Paul wrote this letter, Bibles like, weren't just dropped into the laps of people in Rome. What actually had to happen is um, Phoebe, 
Uh, she's one of the deaconesses in Corinth. She takes the letter. You can read this in Romans 16. She, Paul gives her the letter. She goes to Rome. She gathers the house churches together, and she orally delivers this message. In other words, she preaches this message to the Christians in Rome. And there is a technique. So Romans, before it was read, Romans was a sermon that you heard. This is like, gather up, everyone. I've got 16 chapters worth of material to preach to you today. I'll be a little bit quicker than that. Romans is first an oral sermon. Every preacher will tell you there are times when we do rhetorical techniques to help you just kind of understand our point. So earlier, just a minute ago, I said, all of you are Israelites. And you just kind of went along with it. You said, yeah, I'm going to imagine myself to be an Israelite for a minute. And then just a minute ago, I also said um, that I no longer want to work out. I impersonated this guy. I no longer want to work out. Not for one moment did you think you were really an Israelite, but you imagined that. Not for one more moment did you think I was the man who was struggling with working out, but you could imagine that. Paul's using an imperson's, uh, like an impersonization technique right now where he's saying, imagine the person under the life of Adam. The person under the life of Adam says, I can't do what I want to do. The person who is still in the domain of sin says, I can't actually live the way I want to live. Paul's pointing out you should be able to see a difference between Romans 7 and Romans 8, between a person who still lives in Egypt and a person who's been set free. That's reason one. Reason two, Paul is not talking about the daily experience of a Christian because he's gone to such great lengths to talk about a believer being set free from sin. Look at Romans 6 right here. He says, you have been set free from sin and become slaves to righteousness. This is such different than his Romans 7 language of you are enslaved, sold as a slave to sin. You've been set free from sin. Now you have been set free from sin. You've become slaves of God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification and to its end, eternal life. And then Romans 8, the law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Every new believer I talk to, and I'm sure you've experienced this as well before, talks about having some victory over sin. It doesn't mean that you're perfect. It doesn't mean that you're not tempted. It doesn't mean that you don't struggle and fight and contend for holiness. But you do find yourself having victory over sin in certain areas that you didn't have before. You have been set free. Remember, you were once a slave in Egypt, but you no longer are. Once you have faith in Christ, you are freed from the power of sin. You're taken out of Egypt, and you begin to live a life of moving through trials towards the promised land. And there, again, could be moments where you are tempted to act under the influence of Egypt, tempted by sin, but you no longer live there. The power of sin has been broken by the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world on the cross. He puts himself in your place, and in doing so, frees you, rescues you, dramatically out of the land of Egypt, the domain of sin. Paul is bringing his long argument to conclusion. In Romans 7, he wants to remind you, you were once a slave in Egypt. In Romans 8, he wants to say, but you're not anymore. You are no longer enslaved to sin. You have been set free. So he says, when you have been set free, this, this total experience in Christ, it'll be something like just a, a change in your thinking. Your whole worldview changes, a change in your ethics, your moral compass. 
a change in your emotions, what moves you towards compassion, a change in your willpower. The old truly has gone, the new has come, and nothing in all of creation can separate you from this powerful God's love that he has for you once, he, once you surrender and he takes you out of this land. You were a slave in Egypt, you were a slave to sin, but you no longer are. And we practice this remembrance. Why do we do this? Why do we practice remembering Egypt? We practice this remembrance because it cultivates dependency and desire. Dependency on God. God, I need you. I remember where I was, the type of man that I was, the type of woman that I was, and I need you like my lungs need oxygen to live. Cultivates dependency when you remember this and desire. God, how you rescued me. God, would you pour out your spirit on others? God, I do not want to be satisfied thinking that that person just not praying for them anymore. I'm not concerned about them anymore. God, I want you to rescue like only you can rescue my spouse, my child, my cousin, my aunt, my uncle, my coworker. I want you to do, God, what only you can do, rescue. We remember we've come from Egypt because it cultivates in us a dependency on God and a desire to see him act again. Come, Holy Spirit, we pray. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.